Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. As the reading science movement continues to grow, even during this unprecedented time, it's so important to stay focused on what it takes to develop confident and capable readers. As we've learned, change can happen fast. That makes it even more important to stay connected and learn from each other. The more we learn and listen, the more prepared we'll be to lead. Together, let's voice challenges and take action. Today, we talk with practitioner Kelly Morin from Chardon, Ohio, about the journey from a balanced literacy district to one focusing on science of reading principles. Hear how this district, with support from the Ohio Department of Education, has shifted its literacy practices. Kelly describes an aha moment when, though they said literacy improvement was important, they realized they had no improvement plan. Fast forward to today, where they've put in place some innovative approaches to engage students and families in literacy. Well, hello, Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. My pleasure, Susan. It really is an honor to be able to speak with you today and be featured on the Science of Reading podcast. I am so excited because you are early in the work um, of adopting some science of reading principles and ideas and philosophies, and we'll get to that. But I'd like to start by asking you, like, what's what's been your your journey into the science of reading, and you know, sort of where have you come from that landed you in this space? Sure. Uh, so my journey really is a mix of kind of both personal and professional experiences. I would say that it definitely started as a young girl. I was very fortunate to be brought up in a print-rich home. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad took me to the library on the weekends. I always saw my parents reading, which was a great model for me. There was books in the home and One of the most endearing things I remember from my childhood is every Christmas, my father would give my mom a gift, a big wrapped box, and in that box were probably about 15 or 20 individually wrapped books. And she would would unwrap them one at a time throughout the year as she finished reading them. And so that just kind of was, you know, the cornerstone of my legacy of being brought up as as a lover of reading. Oh, Um, that is so sweet. (laughs) Like I can just picture that. So she would literally open one, read it, and then wait to open the next one? Yes, yes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And as children, my brother and I, you know, on Christmas morning, so eager to open everything we wanted her to open them all at once but what a neat way for her to build that anticipation of you know books are exciting and sacred and I want to take the time to savor each one so (laughs) definitely definitely cool um what changed the course though for me as I grew up was I had one of those amazing influential middle school language arts teachers who really saw within me um, some potential and related to reading and writing and she eventually became a school administrator in our district and I just admired her and looked up to her and I felt like one day I wanted to be just like her making an impact. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I took the traditional path of becoming a teacher, found my calling in the elementary space. I took a job teaching third grade, and this was in a high-performing district. I really enjoyed it, but I, I have to say I did struggle deeply with 
that small population of students in my class every year who had real difficulty reading. And my struggle wasn't with the students. My struggle was with myself because of the things I was trying to do to help them weren't really working. Um, and that left me kind of frustrated because at the time I was young and fresh out of college. I was highly motivated, kind of wide-eyed thinking I could change the world. Um, and so that's when I started to focus for myself, just trying to deeply learn everything I could about reading instruction and materials. So while I was teaching, I, I continued to go back to school. I worked on getting my master's in school administration and eventually got my doctorate in school leadership. And along the way, professionally, uh, new opportunities started to present themselves. So I became a literacy coach for my district and then an assistant principal and then a curriculum director. Director. And while working in curriculum, um, I, the district I was working in was really heavily emphasizing and pushing the reading workshop model, mm -hmm. which just kind of left me feeling uncomfortable. It didn't really, I didn't connect with that philosophy. Um, then I switched districts and became an elementary principal. And one of the first things that shocked me as a new hire there was that there was no daily explicit structured phonics program, which, which I wholeheartedly believed in. Um, and I knew from my coursework and research on leadership, though, not literacy, this is the leadership piece, um, that it wasn't going to benefit me to push a large-scale change like that right out of the gate. I knew we needed to build buy-in and help inform people of the need for something like that. And slowly mm -hmm. as a district, we made that shift. Um, Can I ask you a question before yeah. you go on? You yeah. said that you were, uh, you were uncomfortable with the workshop model. Is that yeah. because of the training that you had because of the work that you did personally? Did you get that in your undergraduate program? Yeah, great question. I would say it's, I did not get it in my undergrad program. And I think that's why I felt uncomfortable because when I went, I went to a great university, but my university training was focused on balanced literacy and reading workshop, um, appreciation of literature. It was very philosophy based, not at all mm -hmm. science or evidence based. But what I had started to learn in my professional career as I was changing roles and I started pulling articles for myself, anything, you know, Dr. Louisa Motes wrote or Tim Shanahan wrote, things started to change for me and click. Uh, and that's... Got it. Mm -hmm, yeah. Okay. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go no, ahead. No, that's okay. That kind of sums up the story of how I landed here. I would say what really locked it into place for me, and I wonder if other listeners out there could relate to this piece. It's not often talked about um, in this podcast, but I became a mom. My husband and I had our first child, and I think there was no greater motivation for me, Susan, than looking at my daughter's face and just really being determined to set her up for success by the time she started kindergarten. Um, and so that really, you know, on the personal side, motivated me to find out everything I could about how to help kids learn to read. Yeah. Well, I, I know, well, for me personally, that's what brought me into education was my second son's struggle with, you know, learning how to read. And eventually he was diagnosed with dyslexia, but a long time coming. Um, but there is something about 
being responsible for both your own children, but also at the classroom level and then at the building level. I can imagine as you're in charge of a district and you know you want to do some changing, um, the combination of those two things was really a catalyst for you to change. Definitely. Hmm. And when you came into this new district then in terms of a leadership position, uh, talk to me about, you know, some of the things you observed, um, some of the things you knew that you needed to change. What did that journey look like? Mm -hmm. So at that time, you know, I think when the Common Core came out in 2008, 2009, different people interpreted it differently. And there were certainly... Uh, an era of popularity towards reading workshop and that balanced literacy type of approach. And so what I saw as I started to feel more comfortable in my new setting in my new district and started paying closer attention to what instructional strategies were being used and what instructional models were being used, I saw hints and elements of that. And that really, again, was not parallel or connecting with or aligned with what I was reading on my own, you know, authors like Diane McGinnis and Mm -hmm. Daniel Willingham's work and Miriam Wolf's work, what I was reading and believing in my heart and seeing backed up by research wasn't what we were authenticating and putting into practice in the classroom. And um, I think about, was it about this time? Well, I know, let's, so you live in Ohio. Yes. Um, and I do know that Ohio, I think it, you told me this has recently been updated, but Ohio actually is committed to the same journey uh, in science-based reading as you are. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Proud to be from this state and the work that our (laughs) Department of Education is doing in regards to kind of leading the charge on the science of reading and having high expectations for us as educators here. Um, In 2017, actually, Ohio was awarded $33 million for the Striving Readers Grant. And this was the same school year in which they released the initial edition of their plan to raise literacy achievement. They have since updated it in 2020. And the plan is very clear and it's very specific and it holds uh, educators in the state of Ohio and the school leaders in the state of Ohio to implement instructional strategies and materials that are aligned to the science of reading. So it's great for us as educators to have a clear expectation and a clear framework to work from. And the state is supporting us, you know, with professional development and guidance on that. So it's exciting. Yeah, and I pulled up that document and they explicitly outline the simple view of reading. Yes. With the two elements, word recognition and language comprehension. Um, that actually give us reading comprehension. So you're in a district wanting to make change. You know, you know that the the Ohio Department of Education is moving in the same way. What are the some of the kinds of things that you did? Um, I mean, good for you for recognizing that from a leadership perspective. We just, you know, we we have to like help people understand why shifts need to be made and why implementation changes need to happen. How did you start that journey? Yeah, so the state's plan coming out and the grant money really was our catalyst for change. This was our our reason. It was the open door opportunity for us to kind of elevate ourselves and and 
and take the chance to do something different. What happened to us here in Chardon, though, was we um, started to be really interested in going after this grant when it first came out. And what happened was when we were looking at the application criteria, one of the things required was to upload your district's copy of its local literacy plan. And Susan, that was just like almost knocked the wind out of us, kind of a light bulb moment because at that time we did not have a local literacy plan. Wow. And it was kind of like, how did we not think of that before? Like we <laughs> want to change and we want to do all these things, yet we for ourselves don't even have a clearly spelled out plan. And and when you think about it, it's like how could we ever really make sustainable change if we weren't clear with ourselves yet first what our vision was and what our plan was. So so you were applying for a grant and as a process part of the process of the grant application, you needed to submit your literacy yes. plan for which you had none. Right. Right. So that that really got the ball moving here and got us motivated. So in terms of your question, well, it's one of the first things we did. Well, we put together a literacy team and this team included teachers, parents, community leaders. We had representatives from higher ed universities. We had a pediatrician sit with us, um, someone from our Cleveland literacy cooperative. So they were representing nonprofits and our state support team personnel. And what we did was, you know, we just went through looking at data. We developed goals for ourselves. We came up with an actual vision statement for what we wanted a literate uh, graduate of ours to embody. And when the second round of grant funding came out, man, were we ready to apply? Yeah. <laughs> of course, just like everyone's been saying recently, it came out last year and then COVID happened. And right. so, yeah, so we all kind of went remote and felt like, how are we going to still be able to pull this off? There were some still odd and end pieces that we needed to shore up and tie up before our application was complete. And everybody really... Uh, rolled up their sleeves and worked together virtually and we got our application submitted and we found out in August that we were awarded $1,050,000 to support K-3 early literacy initiatives in our district, all completely aligned to the science of reading. <laughs> That's amazing. So I'm, I'm assuming then, backing up to the development of this literacy plan, the literacy plan um, included evidence-based practices. How did you sort of bring that into the mix then to get this as part of your plan? Mm -hmm. Certainly, um, again, working in the state of Ohio is wonderful because Ohio Department of Education has developed their own What Works Clearinghouse. So we have a repository that we can go to that lists evidence-based interventions, evidence-based practices that we can use as we implement science of reading frameworks. Um, but part of this journey for us was educating ourselves as a district also on the difference between evidence-based and research-based and having conversations with our teachers and admin staff that just because something is research doesn't mean that it has a positive effect on student achievement and so mm -hmm. that's part of it as well as making sure um, we looked at our data first to know where our 
areas of improvement reside, and then what evidence-based practices we could pair up with that to support those areas. Did you mention to me that um, you also did some either book studies or read common research articles or something like that? Yes, absolutely. So we felt that it was important for us uh, we have a we have a shared vision, and for everybody to buy into that, we need people to be educated and understand the backstory, so to speak. And so, and and our teachers were asking for this as well. They wanted to be a part of this exciting journey. But what we heard them starting to say was, we need to learn more. We need more PD on this. And so what we thought we would do is have our staff engage in professional reading together. And we started with our district leadership team. And so we would pull articles written by Tim Shanahan or Louisa Motes. And as a district leadership team on um, summer retreat days or our meeting days throughout the year, we would actually read those articles and break out in small groups and talk about them. And then we eventually moved to even more deeper reading and did book studies. So we offered members of our district leadership team choices in books and mm-hmm. one of the books we did was Diane McGinnis's Why Our Children Can't Read mm-hmm. and what we are doing about it and just I'm, I'm sure you can only imagine the conversation we had about shifting beliefs and questioning what some of us used to know or think was right even though it was based on popular practice not evidence were really really pivotal and and changed changing for us. Hmm. You know, it seems like such a a simple or maybe even intuitive effort to just get people reading uh, and talking about things together, but it takes discipline to be able to commit yourself to doing that. Certainly. Yeah. And then another um, shared book, which we've been using in the district for the past couple of years now is Natalie Wexler's The Knowledge Gap, which I know you've hosted her on the podcast Mm -hmm. and um, her writing is just very pivotal, and uh, and our teachers have really latched on to that. So it's been eye-opening for us. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about pre-COVID, and then we'll talk about post-COVID. But in terms of some of the shifts um, in classroom practices and things like that, uh, what what incremental steps were you starting to take to shift those practices? Mm-hmm. So a couple of things. One would be leveled readers versus decodables. Mm. And our teachers were, you know, pre-COVID a number of years ago, were really tied tied to their leveled readers and found comfort in that and felt like they were doing what was best for kids by putting them into those leveled reading groups. However, now we've learned and we've read and we've researched and know that there is not evidence to support leveled readers and instead we should be using decodable readers. So that's been a big shift for us. Um, Another thing is weekly skills-based reading instruction. And by that, I mean having a du jour skill of the week, like this week would be main idea and details, and next week would be author's purpose, and the following week would be inferencing. Instead of rapidly going week by week teaching a different skill in using literature or stories that change, we are now 
we have shifted to appreciating the language comprehension side of the simple view of reading and understanding that we need to take longer amounts of time to go deeper into concepts and topics so that students can develop that rich background knowledge mm -hmm. that we know is so important from things like Natalie Wexler's book and the baseball study. Mm -hmm. So it's that shift in the rapid skills-based approach to reading as opposed to taking longer amounts of time to build content knowledge for our students. That's great. And I know you mentioned that when you got to the district, there was no systematic approach to teaching word recognition. Did you, Correct. how did you make that shift? Yes. So that shift, and I'm, I'm so happy to say that's totally changed. Um, we have a daily systematic explicit phonics program that we use, Wilson Foundations. All of our teachers are trained. We support new hires when they come on with training and materials for that. Uh, we've supplied our teachers with coaching support for that um, program after we were initially trained. But to answer your question, how we got there was a slow process of developing first a committee. Uh, that committee did some shared professional reading together. We went on site visits to other school districts using phonics programs. We were very strict with ourselves in only looking at phonics programs that were rated green by Ed Reports. Mm -hmm. That rating held, was, you know, held weight for us. And then once we narrowed down our search to the programs that were of interest to us, we actually used a rubric to rate those programs. One kind of came to the top as the winner, um, if you will, and we came to consensus that that would be the best fit for our district. Hmm. So you took a really systematic approach to both yes. the word recognition side and now sort of the language comprehension side. Yes. This is this is an out of the blue question that I'm okay. going to ask you. When you think about the in terms of change, right? Which has been more challenging for you, or maybe what's been more challenging for the you know classroom aspect of it? Uh, changing word recognition for teachers to understand or the language comprehension side? I would have to say the language comprehension side has been more challenging. Why I, is that? You know, I think teachers see the value in the explicit phonics and the results you see from that type of instruction might are a bit more rapid. They're a bit more dramatic. You can see the changes a kindergartner makes from the first month of school to the third month of school. And when you start teaching them blends and digraphs and, and their reading takes off, I think it takes a little bit longer to really see the gains with the language comprehension piece. You know, we need to immerse our students in a topic and take time to develop the academic vocabulary for that topic and read deeply about that topic and write deeply about that topic and have conversations, dialogue about that topic. So I think that's been a harder shift. Hmm. Uh, I'm not surprised by that language. Just if you look at Scarborough's Rope, there's a little more involved in language comprehension than there is on the word recognition side. Right. Yeah. And have you started then to introduce these kind of domains or topics of knowledge to your students? Yes, absolutely. So uh, 
a lot of this was kind of backwards design for us. And what we saw was when we started to look at our data, our biggest concern was our high school students not passing end of course exams in the English language arts. And when you look at that and start to have the conversations about why is that? Our, our, our teachers are wonderful. They're highly trained. They're passionate. They're motivated. They're working hard. Our students are motivated as well, and they're hardworking. Where, where did this kind of gap come from? And then when we started to talk about the, the materials our students were using in reading, were they the best things to build up that deep, rich content knowledge for them to be able to comprehend passages or texts that, that they were then encountering? Hmm. Hmm. That's really, that's really interesting. And, and, you know, that kind of thinking about, so you were mentioning something about language comprehension and, you know, building that background knowledge and how, how much longer it takes. It really is a commitment, not just in the elementary grades, but it's a commitment to see kids all the way through their entire schooling and beyond. Correct. And so then another shift for us as well was making sure our teachers know that listening comprehension far outweighs reading comprehension well into middle school. Yeah. And so talk about another instructional shift in that we really needed to continue to increase the amount of time teachers are reading aloud to our students beyond just second or third grade. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, again, it's another one of those things that's intuitive, but we, we forget about it or mm -hmm. we don't recognize the importance of doing it coherently and systematically. Right. Um, so even though it takes a, a long time to shift, talk to me a little bit about your student data. Like what did you see before you started this journey? So we're thinking, you know, you started this journey, you created a literacy plan, um, and then we'll talk about COVID in just a minute, but what have you seen so far in the student data? Yeah. So when we looked at our high school student data back in 2016, we had 63% of our students who were passing and proficient on those end of course exams. Slowly, when we looked at the data year after year then, 2017, 2018, 2019, three years later, that number, that 63% proficient passage, rose up to 87%. Wow. So we could see gains there. Um, that was in ELA 1. ELA 2, similar story. Back in 2016, our passage rate was only that 64%. Um, and three years later in 2019 for ELA 2, it was close to 80%. It was at 78%. So we could see once we invested the time in professional development and high quality materials aligned to the science of reading, we could see a difference. And I, I truly think at that level, it was because we were taking more time to invest in students' language comprehension. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, our data story at the elementary level looked different. Um, in 18, in the 18-19 school year, 9.5% of our kindergarten students were on what we call reading improvement monitoring plans. Um, Ohio designates that we need to assess students early on in the school year and any student who's not on track in for grade level reading, we then create a reading improvement monitoring plan for that child. What we saw in the data though 
was that in first grade, that number jumps up to 35%. Wow. So we had to talk about what is happening between kindergarten and first grade when in kindergarten, the majority of our kids are starting on track, but by the time they get into first grade, so many more of them are not on grade level. And I believe it was because we did not have that daily explicit structured phonics Mm -hmm. program. Once Mm -hmm. we did that, well, we saw the data start to change and fewer and fewer students are on those reading improvement monitoring plans today. Hmm. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And that jump, I mean, we know first grade is such an important year. Um, people often think, oh, the end of third grade, you know, that's an indicator for college readiness or, you know, the end of second grade or fourth grade data is bad, but we forget to look at first grade, one of the most yes. significant. Yeah. You know. hmm. um, so... Uh, remind me um, in your in your grant that you received generally how are you investing those dollars to help in literacy great question I'm so glad you asked me because I get so excited to talk about the grant with people one of the things we're focusing most on how we're going to spend the money is to finally have a literacy coach here in our district so many districts have instructional coaches and and are able to provide that coach right alongside teachers throughout the entire school year. Well, we did not have a literacy coach here in Chardon. Mm-hmm. And now with this grant, we are able to have one with us. And it's it's already made such an impactful difference. Um, other things we're investing the money in is teacher professional development. So starting in January, we're rolling out the letters training. Oh, that's exciting. Yes, for all of our K-3 to teachers. And we couldn't be more thrilled about that. We're also buying more professional books and holding more teacher book clubs throughout the future years. We're partnering with the the Kids Read Now organization so that all of our K-3 students this summer will be receiving in the mail tactile and tangible books that they have picked out, um, high quality materials that will be delivered right to their door that they can read in their hands, um, and they come with cue cards for their parents to guide them with conversation. So it really bridges that gap between school and family and community, but it also will hopefully prevent some of that summer slide that we tend to see in typical years. Um, Another thing that we're doing that we're really excited about is we're utilizing the grant money to create a summer camp. And we're kind of out of the box thinking on this one. Traditionally, academic summer camps are focused on students, right, and giving them remediation or intervention and enrichment. And we're certainly doing that in this summer camp this year. But we're also providing a camp experience for parents. So parents can show up at the camp with their child. The child will receive instruction from one of our teachers. While that is happening, parents then will be grouped in classrooms as well with teachers learning what they can be doing at home to support early literacy development. So it's student teaching and training, but it's also parent education piece. And the grant will allow us to uh, purchase materials for that and compensate teachers to lead that summer camp. That's amazing. That is Mm -hmm. amazing. A connection right to uh, the caregivers that can then support those kids right there. Yes. Yes. Mm, that's exciting. Um, so all this comes amid COVID. How has that changed uh, what your plans are? Or how has that changed instruction? Or Kelly, maybe both. <laughs> definitely both. It's definitely changed some of the the grant plans that we had. And, 
you know, we're very lucky in that the state has let us uh, amend and update and revise our plans so that most of our PD now can be taken place virtually. Um, and we're also looking at other alternatives in terms of materials that we can get students instead of hands-on materials, maybe more technology-based literacy materials that we can, we can give those students. We're hopeful that if everything is safe and healthy this summer that we could still pull off our summer camp in person. However, we've started to brainstorm ways that we can uh, put that event into into place but do it virtually. So mm -hmm. it, it definitely has caused us to stay on our toes and be creative and brainstorm, but uh, we're so fortunate to have the funding that we are we're making it work. Yeah. Instructionally, we have had our students here in Chardon in person 100% of the time outside of the first week. And so we've been able to just really, our teachers are very um, passionate about teaching what's most important. And I think this is a message to districts who have invested the time in developing curriculum maps and pacing guides and identifying their power standards. We are fortunate enough to have done that groundwork here in Chardon previously. So our teachers already had identified their power standards and power indicators. So we know that time with our students right now in person is so precious that we might not have it all year. And so we're hitting hard the most essential standards that we can. And we're really taking advantage of every minute of direct, explicit instruction we have with our students. Hmm. And have you, um, in terms of precautions, then the classrooms must look different. Mm, yes, and, and I hear very loudly and passionately, often from my primary teachers, right? Because they're so used to wanting to model with the movements of their mouth oh, in, right. in teaching students decoding and those types of things. Certainly, we've um, taken safety precautions and students and staff all wear masks and our students have desk shields, um, but we've gotten really creative and there's great um, videos that we've been able to pull and show the students online in which someone is projecting correct enunciation and pronunciation of, of letter sounds and things like that. So it does look different, but um, we're making do. <laughs> yeah, we've all had to learn how to be really flexible in this in this moment and mm -hmm. just never know when when that remote is going to hit you again. So right, right. Yeah, appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, as we sort of wrap up here, I would love for you to talk to our listeners that are either just thinking of starting this journey or really early on in this journey. Um, what kind of advice would you have for them? Absolutely. I would say take the time to invest in putting together a literacy team. Um, I think most districts know that they should be looking at their data, and I think most districts do that. I think districts already know to purchase high-quality evidence-based materials, but if you take the time to create a team within your district to sit and have the conversations about what the vision is and what the plan is for how we're going to take that data and transform it to change, what the plan is for how we're going to take these high-quality materials and actually implement them with fidelity. 
if you invest the time in creating a team and a plan, then things will run smoothly because there's buy-in and there's a shared sense of collective belonging to the mission and the vision. Well, that's very wise words, Kelly. And we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for the work that you're doing there in Chardon and the work that you're doing for the students. Well, likewise, on your part, you know, we're just appreciative of the work that Amplifying the Science of Reading podcast is doing and getting information to teachers so easily nowadays. You know, years ago, it was hard to find this information. And the fact that you guys put it out to teachers and make it easily digestible and for free is really wonderful. So we appreciate you and acknowledge you guys as well. Well, thank you. Take care, Kelly. You too. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to learn more? Make sure you join our free virtual literacy symposium, Literacy in a Changing World, Moving Forward Together. It's on Thursday, October 15th, and information is in the show notes. Also, be sure to stay connected by subscribing on your favorite podcast app and join our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. Until next time, keep the hope, take the action, and stay in touch.